Bondzilla presents King Kong. Each week we dive into the world of King Kong. This week, Peter Jackson writes a love letter to the original classic. It's the 2005 version of King Kong. everybody welcome once again to bondzilla presents i am nick i'm will and we are here to continue on the king kong train as we approach the final king kong stations on our king kong railway Woo! Uh, isn't it more so like the king kong voyage yeah that's true all like boats right uh necessarily trains we're almost to the final skull island almost literally but like but like boats are kind of like sea trains yeah i mean they just yeah they're just free float they're yeah well i mean like i mean yeah they're kind of more like sea cars because like cars can just go anywhere but are boats like sea cars really they're at best they're like sea buses well according to the cars franchise everything is everything's a car (laughs) I was just I was talking to, I was like going my girlfriend about the whole like how messed up the cars universe is yeah the whole thing and it's just like one of it's like you know like there's like you know there's like trucks and boats but then they have like other they like put other living things inside of them like Mac and stuff and like you know and then I, there's like planes and shit and trains like they're just my, putting things inside of each other my it's favorite crazy. my favorite joke in all the cars movies is in, is in cars 2 right and and I and I and I signif- here like Cars one and three are fine. Cars mm-hmm. three is actually not that bad. Yeah, and I Cars like, one is actually like a fine movie. I like Cars, cars two one. is the one where it's like uh, whatever. Yeah. But Cars two has a joke where they're in Europe and then they go into the black market and Mater finds the car with. Like the the way the car is designed is that the eyes are the headlights, right? Kind of, it's like how the all the old like cartoons used to do it, like back oh, like, in, like every other cartoon, right? Like, like every other all cartoon the, does all it. the old Disney cartoons and stuff would have the eyes as the headlights. So and they, then, so he finds a car, and then the headlights open up, and those are the eyes because in the Cars universe, like the way that it works is like the windshield is the eyes. Yeah. So then, like the eye, the, the 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 headlights open up, and it's in its eyes, and then like the the car is like headlights, 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 and then Mater's like, oh, oh, what a freak! <laughs> and and I had to admit, like that was a level of self aware humor that yeah. was actually really funny. But also, because... just like it's just like again, when you think about it for even a slight second, it's just like how messed up that is that there's. Like these freaks of nature cars, like or like right, was that right. was that like a Frankenstein experiment or like 
you know, is there like just some doctor that says like, we can't fix your eyes, but well, we can fix your I, eyes. I mean, obviously it was getting into the territory of like, oh, it's Europe and it's the black market and there's, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, messed up cars. I won't get into like the, yeah. the problematic aspects of that, but ultimately the self-aware joke yeah. that they know that that's normally how it, it's just, I had to give them credit for an otherwise not great movie. Like that was yeah. a really funny joke. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember like everything else I was like, the, but, and, but that legitimately made me laugh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I like cars three as well. Um, yeah. it's fine. Cars three was one of those ones I watched and I was like, Oh, this isn't bad. This is yeah. pretty good. It's kind of a, remember, you know. remember the weird, like, like the, the grown up trailer teaser for it mm-hmm. where it was like, Oh, like the lightning McQueen car is like being destroyed and it's all slow motion and Zack Snydery and blood. And then they're like, Oh man, the cars franchises being taken for a turn. God, could you imagine the Snyder cut of cars? I mean, now I'm just imagining a four hour Pixar movie and you know, why not? Yeah. At this point, well, we just, we, we got through a three hour movie. Anyway, speaking 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 of a speaking of like a three four hour movie, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So we're here talking about what's probably I, I I mean, our next one is also very big for its own reasons, but really, you know, it's thirty three, and I think this one that really stands out in a lot of people's minds when it comes to King Kong, and of course, we are talking about the two thousand five remake of the original King Kong, presented to us by director Peter Jackson. Um, and yeah, this was, you know, this was one of those things where just even reflecting now before we get into the movie and the production is like, this was a big deal at the time, obviously, you know, kind of coming off the Lord of the Rings stuff and the, and the, the effects stuff. And, and this is kind of like, for a long time, this was the kind of the Kong of pop culture. This is like the Kong look that would be on merchandise and advertisements and, and sort of any time that kind of Kong would appear it would kind of be this visage of Kong. So this is a very big and important sort of movie in the Kong legacy and kind of almost in a way sort of cements that kind of Kong legacy in many ways. So as always, I'm very excited to sort of dig into this movie uh, for a myriad of reasons. Um, Not one of course is Peter Jackson and its status as kind of a remake and us talking about like a kind of legitimate sort of, not one for one remake, but a remake that really shares a lot with the original film. It'll be, of course, interesting, as I always like to say, uh, to talk about. So if you're ready to kind of dig into the 2005 Kong, uh, we can get started. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we left Kong off in uh, 1986 with the release of King Kong Lives from De Laurentiis Productions, which, of course, was a big time flop. And no more Kong films from De Laurentiis Productions or Dino De Laurentiis. So now we're at a point where the rights, again, are still held essentially by Universal after all these kind of weird lawsuits and, and questions and you know getting Nintendo involved, everything. Universal is kind of sitting on these rights and nobody's really interested in using them at the moment. But another thing that I did mention happened in 1986 Uh, that was a big part of Kong's legacy was the debut of the King Kong section of the Universal Studios Hollywood uh, studio tour Uh, that they have a big Kong animatronic and it was a big deal. And now this coupled with uh, 
the opening of Universal Orlando in 1989 and their Kong Frontation attraction meant that Kong was now sort of a big time part of the Universal Studios theme parks marketing. It, it stood right alongside Jaws and Back to the Future and E.T. as sort of that big sort of initial push for Universal Studios actually becoming theme parks. And we're talking about the early 80s into or late 80s into early 90s when this was kind of the first big quote unquote theme park wars when Universal was trying to really step up against Disney as they kind of expanded their parks in Orlando. So what this meant for Kong is that Kong was a big part of this Universal Studios theme park marketing, which meant now Kong was getting an association with the Universal Studios logo and the Universal Studios kind of iconography that it stood alongside all these other Universal legendary productions. So Universal kind of had it back in its head like, okay, now Kong is kind of being established as kind of ours, at least for the time being. Let's maybe kind of plan something with this. Let's kind of maybe figure out something. Uh, and when they do figure out something initially is a fateful meeting in 1996 with director Peter Jackson. Now, Peter Jackson, again, we've kind of talked about him a little bit over the course of this podcast for varied reasons, but Peter Jackson, New Zealand born director, uh, very sort of rising up the ranks as, as part of 1996 is concerned. Um, you know, he was mostly originally known for these kind of cult kind of horror and weird movies like Brain Dead, also known as Dead Alive, Meet the Feebles, uh, eventually got some attention with his uh, Oscar nominated script for Beautiful Creatures, uh, which was about the killing uh, these two girls who murdered their mother um, in New Zealand, a very famous case. And he was making waves around Hollywood at this time as he was about to release his newest production, The Frighteners, which you and I, of course, are big fans of. And we've we've shared that you should definitely watch The Frighteners if you've never seen it. Now, we know from history that The Frighteners did not end up becoming a big hit. But the dailies and the work on the effects and the fact that Jackson through the Frighteners and starting with Beautiful Creatures into The Frighteners had started essentially his own effects studio, which would become Weta Digital. Had made, had made the rounds and Universal had seen these dailies and seen the effects and were super impressed with what he had to do. So as they're kind of in the post-production phase of the Frighteners and they're getting gearing up for release, Universal contacts Peter Jackson for a meeting. And Universal's intention for the meeting is that they want to offer Jackson a chance to remake Creature of the Black Lagoon. And Jackson initially says no, but through their conversations... Universal figures out that Jackson is a major, major, major King Kong fan. Uh, the stories that Jackson would tell is that he first saw King Kong when he was nine, and he remembers crying when King Kong died the movie. He initially tried to remake the movie as a 12-year-old using his mother's furred coat as King Kong, but eventually gave up on the project, but essentially began to become a, a collector of King Kong memorabilia. So he has... Like, you know, he would collect the one of the original scripts from King Kong. He owns like an original script from the 33 King Kong. He owns props from the movie, such as drums and spears from, from the tribal sequences and everything like that. Um, and he would have the magazines, most famously uh, an issue of uh, Famous Monsters of Movie Land, his 50s kind of 60s magazine, which detailed the history of the King Kong movie and, and detailed a lot of the deleted scenes of the film and the production. Uh, and it was to the point where in his film, Braid Dance slash Dead Alive, he actually used Skull Island as the point of origin for his zombie virus in that movie. 
So Universal is kind of talking to Jackson about all this, and they're like, oh, actually, this would this works out. We're kind of thinking about a King Kong movie in the back of our heads. Why don't you take the King Kong franchise? Why don't you do something with King Kong? And Jackson, again, initially says no, he's not interested in doing that. But, you know, he, he you know, they ambically, you know, they, they end the meeting on good terms, and Universal says, okay, well, we'll think of you for other projects because we think you got a bright future. Uh, but Jackson, the night that he denied that offer, couldn't fall asleep. Because his worry was, all right, well, if they offer it to me and I don't accept it, then they're going to offer it to someone else. And someone else is going to make a new King Kong movie and they're going to mess it up and they're going to make it bad. And I can't let that happen. So the next day, uh, Jackson called Universal back and it was basically said, let's keep that King Kong option on the table. Now, the thing about Jackson at this time was I I mentioned this actually a long time ago in one of our Prius Brosnan episodes for Bond. But this was about the time that Jackson was going to break out regardless of what he was offered. And there were a lot of offers on the table for him at this time. Uh, because not only were he talking to Universal about this potential King Kong movie, obviously he was already in the throes of talking with Miramax and the Tolkien estate and the Weinsteins about acquiring the Lord of the Rings rights for, for him. Uh, Fox had contacted him to do a Planet of the Apes reboot, which of course would eventually be directed by Tim Burton. So, and you know, he was being considered for the Bond movie, even though it was never officially offered to him. He knew that this was on the table as well. So Jackson had a lot of offers at this time. And essentially it was, it came down between Lord of the Rings and King Kong. And because of the kind of rights tie-ups with Lord of the Rings and sort of the slowness of his Weinstein partners to get on those rights, Jackson eventually accepts the King Kong offer to make a movie about King Kong with production and release in 1997. Um, sorry, in 1998. Production starting in 97, released in 98, which of course, you know, angered all the, the, the Miramax and Weinsteins and like, you'll never get to make a Lord of the Rings movie, which, you know, does not turn out that way, of course. Uh, so basically, Jackson and his longtime uh, partner, in life and in writing, Fran Walsh immediately gets started on a script for a new version of King Kong. Now, this version of Kong uh, is not as sort of a direct remake as the film would eventually become when it releases in 2005. In the version that Jackson wrote in 96 into 97, Andaro is... Um, it keeps a lot of the characters' names from the original film, but we have Andaro, instead of being an actress, is the daughter of a famous archaeologist and explorer who is searching for answers on why her father was killed when he was trying to research this mysterious Skull Island. Um, the Jack uh, Driscoll character was a former assistant of her father's, and Carl Denham was still the director who basically kind of manipulated Andaro to come on this mission with him just so he could have, you know, the big sort of view of Kong and kind of make a lot of money off the movie. Uh, So this script was sort of quickly written because they wanted to get production in 97 for a 98 release uh, to the point where we do have an insight into what the casting might have been for the 98 version of of King Kong. Uh, Because we know that Jackson in this period traveled to the Titanic set to discuss the role of Andaro with one Kate Winslet, uh, who he had helped bring to fame with Beautiful Creatures. Uh, and if Kate Winslet wasn't available, Jackson's second choice would have been Minnie Driver. Um, 
And then for the uh, romantic lead, the Jack Driscoll character, the the top choice was George Clooney, um, which we have to remember, this was like 97. This was still ER George Clooney. And because this movie was not on the table anymore, eventually, this is when Clooney accepts the role of Batman <laughs> in <laughs> Batman and Robin. So there's an alternate history where this movie gets made and some other some other schmuck is is blamed for ruining Batman forever, even though I, that- I, I love how that's the alternate history. It's like, it's not that, Oh, this could, he could have been a good Batman. It's just like somebody else could have been in the role of being in a bad Batman movie. Well, she didn't ruin Batman forever. And I see certainly didn't ruin Batman and Robin, which is a really, it's not a good movie, but it's a great movie. Nonetheless. Um, <laughs> uh, and then for the Carl Dunham, uh, Dunham role, uh, they were looking at Robert De Niro. So basically a lot of kind of heavy hitters around this time and, and sort of really kind of capturing a, a big cast uh, of characters. They start kind of considering the casting and the Weta digital people uh, most notably, uh, Richard Taylor and, and Christian Rivers, who were kind of the lead of Jackson's personal special effects team at Weta Digital. Uh, they started on the effects work. They started working on the effects of making a, a digital 1933 New York, which, again, I should mention, Jackson's intention was always to set the film in the original era of 1933 uh, and to start working on how Kong would look and using their computer technology to make a new version of King Kong. So they started working on this kind of the previs and part of the the sort of the pre-production of this movie for about six months. And they were about to start with the actual offers for casting and about to start with, uh, you know, finalizing location sets in early 1997 when Universal outright cancels the project. And Universal's reasoning for this was they were taking a look at the future of what was going on in the docket. And they saw that 1998 would not only feature their King Kong movie, but also a certain Godzilla movie by Roland Emmerich, as well as a new Disney version of Mighty Joe Young. So there was a there were, they saw, OK, there's going to be a plethora of giant monster movies of eight movies. We we're going to be behind the ball on this. Let's just kind of let's push it to the side for now. Let's just not do anything. So. Despite the fact that, again, they had sunk the money and the effects were already kind of pre-visualized and everything, this 1998 version of Kong was just canceled. And eventually, Jackson was like, okay, well, hey, can we get those Lord of the Rings rights again? That worked out. And essentially, a lot of the work and tests and effects that they tested for King Kong eventually made their way to being used in Lord of the Rings. So... Uh, everything kind of worked out. Fast forward then to 2003. We're in post-production on Lord of the Rings Return of the King. We've had two very, very successful Lord of the Rings movies. Jackson has made a huge name for himself now. And there's all this buzz about Return of the King, which of course would go on to set Oscar records and everything like that. And, and essentially that this was going to be a perfect trilogy that Jackson was now one of the top hottest directors in Hollywood and universal is like, wait a minute, we, we have a connection with this guy. Let's, let's, let's get back to him. So as they're doing post-production on Lord of the Rings, they call Jackson are like, Hey, so what are your thoughts on kind of restarting this King Kong project? And Jackson 
it basically all parties are, are very happy with how this all turned out because Jackson is like, this would be great. I still would really like to take on King Kong. Now I'm have all the effects that like, will make that the truest King Kong movie. I can use the motion capture I developed. I can use all the effects. My team at what a digital is even stronger now than it was in 97. This is essentially perfect. And I have the power to basically get whatever budget I want because he Jackson knows that these Lord of the Rings films have afforded him so much. Meanwhile, Universal is is pleased because now instead of getting a director that was coming off a slight misfire in the Frighteners in terms of box office wise, now they were getting again one of the most famous and 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 hot directors in the world who has created this near the most perfect trilogy since Star Wars in so many people's eyes that they they had kind of like, okay, well, this is going to be even bigger, even better than we could have ever imagined it back then. So all parties were very happy, and Jackson was able to procure himself a record $20 million contract to direct King Kong. Uh, as far as I know, as far as I researched, a number that would only be matched by Christopher Nolan later down the line. Uh, so Jackson got a lot of money for himself. He promised... a less than $2 million budget. And basically Jackson was like, I'll take whatever, you know, if I go over budget, I'll deal with that later. So Jackson and Fran Walsh go back to their script from 96 and they're not happy with it. Jackson admits that like, it was kind of a rush job because they wanted to get this movie out. And I was super excited to do King Kong. And they bring in the writer of the Lord of the Rings films that they worked with Philippa Boyens. And they all decide together that, okay, let's just kind of, instead of basing it off this 1996 script, let's rework this and basically base it off the original 33 script and kind of do a more traditional version of King Kong instead of kind of all the changes we make. So Anne Darrow's back to an actress. Uh, Carl Dunham is still kind of the, the filmmaker as he's always been in these movies. And that Jack Driscoll character transitions from, you know, originally the first mate in that original 33 to the archaeological assistant in the 96 script to now the New York playwright who's kind of forced to go on this script. Uh, the only character that is still saved other than kind of our big three from the 96 script is the character of Lumpy the cook, uh, because that was actually taken from the King Kong novelization back from 1933. So with that, Jackson uh, immediately gets on to casting because now that they kind of have a better sort of sense of like, okay, the script is going to be an extended version of that original 33 script. Um, and Jackson also uh, takes care in his knowledge of King Kong that, okay, we can kind of add in a lot of ideas that were in the original script that weren't you know, able to be filmed by that point. Like, for example, uh, most famously, the spider sequence or the insect sequence, as it becomes known in this movie, is based off a still that Jackson uh, knew from uh, Famous Monsters of Movie Land of a, of a cut sequence using spiders in the original film. So he was like, okay, I'm going to bring all of Marion C. Cooper's ideas to life. Uh, for this movie uh, and there's a couple of other examples of that along the way but now that he has kind of this solid script and and they're working on it he can immediately start casting sort of because he knows the roles and one of the first roles that he decides to cast is the role of kong um which he immediately knows is going to be motion captured by all the uh work that he did on lord of the rings to kind of achieve sort of new grounded motion capture and who else to motion capture Kong, but one Andy Serkis, 
who Jackson was very familiar with and very happy to work with on Lord of the Rings as Gollum. And Jackson just had, there was no other person that he, he wanted to do Kong. And Circus was very eager to sort of, again, kind of continue exploring this motion capture uh, thing that he had been on. Um, he also gets a traditional role in his movie as the aforementioned Lumpy, the cook. Um, but he would kind of be doing double duty as kind of Kong standing on set and as Lumpy. And then would come back, of course, later after the filming had wrapped up to do all the Kong motion capture. Circus uh, did a lot of guerrilla research. Uh, Jackson had originally wanted to go to zoos, but found out that none of the New Zealand zoos actually had any gorillas. So he called in a favor from director Michael Apted, who had directed Gorillas in the Mist, who sent him about 20 hours of gorilla footage from that movie for Circus and Jackson to uh, pine through. And Jackson was also very adamant that he did not want Kong to be any sort of human or anthropomorphic in this movie, as he kind of had been in the 33 and the 76 version. So he was very much to Circus and to his effects team, let's make him a monkey. Let's make him an ape. Let's make him act like an ape. So that's kind of the, the direction that circus and the effects team were going for. Um, but the rest of the cast comes together. We have Naomi Watts as Anne Darrow. Uh, we, uh, we know that basically this came down to Naomi Watts versus Natalie Portman for the role of <laughs> Anne Darrow. Um, but uh Watts was coming off of some Oscar nominations and sort of Jackson just thought that she embodied sort of this kind of, she could embody this old school kind of look for the movie. Um, and he was very eager to kind of, to get her on board. And Watts was very game to work with Jackson, of course, because now Jackson was this hot director and people wanted to work with him and all that, all that sort of fun stuff. A similar story uh, to that was Adrian Brody as Jack Driscoll. Adrian Brody was coming off an Oscar win with The Pianist. And again, he was kind of a hot commodity. And he was Jackson's only choice. Uh, in fact, Brody came into his meeting expecting to audition. And then Jackson told, no, I, I just want you for the role. So whatever you want, like, I want you in here. Uh, and Brody was very, it, Brody felt the role was something different because it was kind of a little bit more action oriented than stuff he had done before. So again, very eager to dig into us and sort of our Kong triumvirate is finished up with blockbuster Jack Black uh, as the Carl Dunham character. Uh, same thing. This was kind of Jackson's only real thought on the casting of the role. He had really liked Jack Black's performance in the 2000 film, high fidelity, the rom-com, which was basically Jack's uh, black Jack Black's coming out party for, for Hollywood in terms of kind of him becoming a star and Jackson. Uh, yeah. I keep saying Jackson, Jack Black had made a, a name for himself in comedy at this point. I mean, this is like kind of around that school of rock time. This is when he's kind of becoming that one of those top comedic actors, but he was very, again, interested in doing something different for himself. And he was also a fan of the original Kong film. Now, the way that Jackson and Bla Jack Black talked about the role of Carl Dunham is that it's not, it's very implicitly based on Orson Welles um, and, and Jack Black about the role and about the research said that he didn't want to imitate Orson Welles, but he wanted to capture the spirit of Orson Welles. And he said, quote, I got to see a lot of drunk footage of Orson Welles. So <laughs> there was a lot of kind of inspiration from, from sort of the stories of Orson Welles and sort of this sort of like 
the film and the vision above all else, even above your actors, even above the safety of everybody else, that spirit kind of encompasses this version of Carl Denham. Uh, but then, you know, we have a Colin Hanks appearance in this movie. Uh, it's sort of a lot of people, uh, the future, uh, Baron Von Strucker, which I was kind of like, Oh yeah, <laughs> that was that guy. I'm so glad you said that. Cause I was watching the movie and I was like, I think that's Baron Von Strucker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Baron Von Strucker. Um, and I, I, I do want to save my thoughts on his performance from the movie, but I'm also very happy to say that Kyle Chandler is in this movie yes. and I'm very eager to discuss like his performance, um, in this movie. Uh, one casting thing I should note as well is um, originally, you know, so Jackson takes a lot of lines directly from the original movie. That includes the final line, "'Twas Beauty Killed the Beast." Jackson's original intention was to bring uh, Faye Ray back uh, to say that final line. Ray was obviously very old at this time and initially declined. There was some indication that she had changed her mind, but unfortunately she passed before any sort of deal could be made. So they gave that number to Jack Black. Um, so very much like a traditional Jackson production, essentially all of it is filmed in New Zealand, both on location in various parts of New Zealand and at his film studio in New Zealand's at the Camperdown Studios, which is where he's basically filmed much of Lord of the Rings. Uh, even much of the Frighteners was filmed around that area. So, uh, but at this point, people knew that the Lord of the Rings thing had worked and New Zealand was becoming a very, again, just like Jackson was becoming a hot director, New Zealand was becoming a very hot place to film and very accepting place to film. And New Zealand government was very open with, you know, subsidiaries and money. So, Every all parties were happy with this, um, and a new soundstage was uh, uh, built at the Camperdown Studio specifically to help with the new effects-laden sets and everything like that. The budget, obviously, um, not obviously, but not surprisingly, ballooned. Jackson promised a hundred and seventy-five million, and it kind of went up to about two hundred and seven million as it's kind of ceiling and universal came in was, you know, with the usual, usual, like, Oh, what's going on? What, why you need more money. But they saw kind of the first screening of the movie, kind of the first dailies and the first shots and the first effects worth. And they were so enamored where they were like, we have, we have a genius film on our hands essentially that they told Jackson, like, yeah, whatever you need to the point where when Jackson is doing the actual post-production and they've kind of edited the script together, Jackson realized, okay, I need a beat from when and is taken by Kong to the, when they get to the Empire State Building. I need a scene. So him and Walsh come up with the famous ice skating sequence at Central Park. And Jackson's like, calls Universal's like, hey, can we have a couple more millions of dollars to like film this ice skating sequence with King Kong and Naomi Watts? And Universal is legitimately like, yes, please add more to this movie add, add whatever you need. Like they are so they see dollar signs with this and they're, they're expecting this to be like one of the biggest movies of all time because of, of all the circumstances with this. Uh, but the main focus of the production is yes, they do a lot of on location shooting and a lot of shooting at the studio, but it's all about the effects. It's all about getting the motion capture. It's all about getting, um, the CG and sort of that, those integrated real CG sets 
and everything's accentuated by computers. And what's, what's really interesting is that essentially the same people that worked on that original 96 Kong and, and did all those pre-effects stuck with Jackson's floor of the rings where now we're back on this with just a much better grasp of that technology. And now Weta Digital was at this point where they were a rival and, and, a, and a kind of a, a parallel to Industrial Light and Magic, that these were now the two big boys in Hollywood. Uh, so they basically, again, use essentially even more refined versions of all the tricks that they had learned on Lord of the Rings to make Kong work. And essentially, too, that they they were very lucky that Kong, again, was very humanoid because they said that, that the, the updated sort of motion face effects that they were able to get from Circus really helped with Kong because, you know, Kong and Circus as humans and apes sort of have a similar facial structure. So when Circus was able to emote, it was very easily able to translate onto the Kong, uh, the Kong effects and Kong anim animation. Um, but this was um, Universal. This was Universal's sort of big ace for their year 2005. It was going to get a, a prime December release. It was going to be highly marketed, like the big trailer reveal was like simultaneously on every single NBC network, NBC, MSNBC, all their news, all their sports stuff. Like everything was just like our trailer dropped. They had this big marketing campaign. They were going to have a big Oscar push for this movie. This was essentially a big deal movie. This was a spectacle. This was the biggest movie of the year in many people's eyes. So that was yeah. sort of the lead up to the movie that is King Kong 2005. Yeah, I, I just remember what was so funny about it at the time was that it was like what you said. It was just it was just a big deal like that, like in the same vein, because I think that there was a little bit of that the reintroduction to Godzilla was a little bit of a wash. Mm -hmm. So it had that same kind of like because there, if you remember when Godzilla '98 was coming out, there was at least a little big, a little bit of a push to be like, it's American Godzilla, like it's it's coming out, and then the aftermath is what the aftermath was. In a similar fashion, it was a big deal that a new King Kong movie was coming out. Mm -hmm. Like I remember, I remember the early days of Apple movie trailers. Yes, it was like it was like front page here is King Kong and especially because, and now it's like Peter Jackson's King Kong. So like that all just added to the whole thing. Yeah. And it was like, again, it was just to think about where Jackson was. Cause you know, like I, we've talked about, I'm a big fan of that pre Lord of the Rings Jackson and just kind of those smaller films, but it's undeniable that what Jackson did with those Lord of the Rings films was game changing in so many ways, just in terms of that era of cinema and, to bring those films, you know, to bring that kind of story to life in the way that he did to the point where, again, like you were coming off of Return of the King, which I mentioned was like set Oscar records and, you know, was a big fantasy and genre and effects driven film that was able to win best picture. Like it was that it was that big, just not even in a pop culture sense, but in like kind of a Hollywood sense. And it was sort of in a way really bringing this Kong legend to life in a new way. And kind of the idea of like, we're taking one of the all time greats and there was an excitement of like, we're going to see it modernized and with the most great effects and, and 
the you know the the technology that like had impressed with Gollum and like Helm's Deep and all the stuff that we know the Lord of the Rings movies for in terms of their effects was going to be all put together in this King Kong movie. And I mean, this was at that time, like, and now so many films have surpassed it, but this was at the time, essentially the most expensive film ever made. And Universal was willing to go along with that because they saw that this was going to be a big deal and that they could make it, make it a big deal. I mean, this was, I, I kind of was thinking like, like if, if Marion C. Cooper like saw this version of King Kong, he just shit his pants. Cause this is essentially was probably in his head back in 1933. <laughs> uh, and, and just like the, the idea that like, Oh, you could make Kong like look like this to him would be crazy. And I think it was crazy. to A lot of people at that time that we were oh, getting to that point where, you know, we were going to have like this huge eight be this big star of the movie um, in a way that like, you know, Gollum was able to steal the show in those original Lord of the Rings movie. But now we kind of really had a full movie focused in on on this motion capture effects giant monkey thing as a character. So a lot of people were interested. There was a lot of hype as we, we, we lead into that December 2005 release. And with that, I think I think it's time uh, to get into King Kong 2005. Uh, the three-hour epic that is Peter Jackson's King Kong. see this we're millionaires boys I'll share it with all of you in a few months his name will be up in lights on Broadway Kong the eighth wonder of the world all right here we go uh let's talk about the 2005 Peter Jackson King Kong movie I'm um, very, I'm very, very interested to talk about this one. Yeah, me too. Like I, it, uh, it's, it was a, I, I said it was a hot minute since I've seen this. Um, and it's been, it was interesting to revisit, especially with, with the memories and especially now having gone through this Kong franchise. And, and it's, this is why I like doing this in order like this, because it is interesting to just see again, this evolution of, Again, we've kind of seen the effects and we've kind of seen the way the story is told and how the performances are. We've seen that sort of grow and change through these different eras of Kong. And we get to this and you you get the sense, again, that this is in many ways supposed to be the ultimate version of this classic Hollywood mythic tale. The classic, most full and complete version of telling the story of this film crew that goes off, finds a giant ape, brings it back to New York. He rampages, falls off the Empire State Building. This is kind of supposed to be the ultimate version of this. And it's interesting to revisit because um, I think there's a lot that I like about it. 
mostly because there's a lot of that kind of Jacksonism that I like. But I can also see this as sort of a, a like almost a transition period from like the sort of the 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 big Lord of the Rings, like the, the things that made Lord of the Rings successful and the things that eventually make the Hobbit films not as successful. Uh, in terms of sort of some of the decision making, some of the way that the, you know, we're, we're kind of some of the side character stuff and the length. And the length is definitely this movie's biggest flaw in retrospect, um, which, of course, we did not. There's a, there is an extended edition, which we did not watch, um, which, you know, I, I guess they're, it's not as popular as the Lord of the Rings extended editions. But we watched the original theatrical three, three hour, seven minute cut. And yeah, there's just there's a lot there's a lot in this movie. And there are points where it just feels like it's a little long in the tooth. At least that's to start with. I have more thoughts, but I really want to hear your kind of initial your initial thing on this movie. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so you so did you watch the theatrical version? I did. So I fucked up. Uh oh. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> um, all right. Uh so here was my story with this. And this is what this will be like a really interesting conversation based mm. off of this. And I was kind of hoping this like halfway through the movie. But so I went on I went to go rent the movie to watch. Mm-hmm. And right when I hit the button to rent it and I went to hit play, like, so the movie was already rented and I was like, it was already paid for and I was about to rent it. That's when I noticed as I pressed play where it said King Kong extended edition. And I was like, fuck, (laughs) (laughs) no, (laughs) but I was like, all right, well, I'm at the, the, the best case scenario is like I will be adding a little bit more context to like an extended version because I didn't know which version we were supposed to be watching. Yeah. Um, especially with this. Um, it's so interesting. Like it was just so weird to watch and like I, I was trying to think of like what is my definitive okay here's the thing it's not a bad movie it's not bad in fact like i would ultimately say my feelings about it were very similar to the original 1930s kong film and then as i was getting in towards the end of this film and i acknowledge that what i'm about to say is a bad criticism or it's a bad way to approach the film. So I acknowledge this, but I do have to be honest in terms of my viewing experience to the film. Mm -hmm. And that was, is like, I'm just not engaged in this traditional King Kong story. I like it from the point of view of like a classic. I like it in the sense of like the Cinderella story or as in like any of like the classic fairy tales or the fables. Like it's a staple of, the classic stories. But if I'm watching it, I'm just not engaged in it as a story. So, and I felt that way. Remember, I, I kind of had felt that way when I was watching the original 30s version. It's like, well, what are you going to say about this story? It's a story they go to the, they, they're on an adventure. They go to the island and then island stuff happens. 
and then the New York stuff happens. And mm-hmm. then it's that's it. That's what it is. And in this film, that kind of happens. But the movie is, in, in my case, for the extended version, is three hours and ten minutes long. <laughs> and there's an aspect of that where you respect Peter Jackson for ultimately you couldn't you cannot argue that he makes the ultimate love letter to this film. Yeah. Like he make like and that's why you can't really be mad at the movie as far as I'm concerned because the easy criticism that I know that people will make about this movie is that the movie doesn't work cuz it's a modern day version and it's all CGI and it doesn't work as well because it's like not as charming as like the original version. And I didn't feel that way. In fact, I would say like this movie is very much like that first movie where it's the traditional story that you know and it uses the technology of that time very well. Mm-hmm. In the same way that we look at that T-Rex fight with King Kong and we look at the stop motion animation and it's amazing. Like that's good. I look at the same way as like I mean the the way in which they realize Kong through the motion capture and through Andy Serkis's performance, who you could make the argue is the best performance of the movie Mm -hmm. in terms of like, it's a thankless performance and the fact that it's as subtle and natural as it is in a movie. Like, it's really funny when you think about it, like in a movie like King Kong, King Kong is the most subtle naturalistic actor of the film more so than all the archetypal like characters in the rest of the film yeah. who are very over the top and cartoony, which is no shade to them. I mean, I, I think that there is some, there, there is some um, merit to that, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I just found myself being like, like, I get it. Like I, I understood mm-hmm. and I, and, and, and very little of it engaged me. And the other thing about it is that, so there's two things. There's like that CGI thing, which I, I kind of dismiss the criticism, I mean. And then the other criticism is like, well, and then I guess like the second criticism is it's too long, which I guess I, I, I mean, I have to admit, like I, it, it is a problem in the movie, which I'll get to. But then the second thing is like, the common thing a lot of people say about this movie is like, well, it spends too much time in New York at the beginning and then you get to like the boat and then it gets on, on, on with the Kong story. And then, then, then the movie kind of finds its stride. And, and I felt that way when I was a youngin and I first saw this movie. I kid you not, when I was watching this movie, because it had been a minute since I seen it and, I've ne- and I don't think I've ever seen the extended version, I found myself at least very much engaged and entertained by all the stuff in the first act and then when they get to the island, I'm like, yeah. Because I remembered, I kind of remembered all that stuff. And then re-watching it, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, they really nailed this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it's good. Like, yeah. it's not bad. But, like, I, I found myself being not bored, but I found myself being on autopilot once they got to the island. I actually like, had... Because all the I had all the same criticisms of that. If you remember the original 1930s movie, I felt like there was all this stuff before the island, and then they get the island, and and then the movie's just on autopilot where they go through a couple set pieces, and then they get Kong, and then the rest of the movie happens. And this movie is not that much different. No, it's not. I actually had a very similar reaction in the sense that 
There was a lot of stuff. Like, it's essentially a movie of three parts. It's essentially the pre-island stuff, the island stuff, and the post-island stuff. And my kind of overview of the movie is I generally liked a lot of stuff before the island. And I liked a good amount of stuff after the island. And I like bits and pieces of the island. But the island stuff, the actual stuff on Skull Island, which is called Skull Island in this movie... Finally, in a King Kong movie, we actually called Skull Island. Um, the island stuff generally had the least interesting stuff in the movie to me. Though, I, again, there are some choice sequences and choice moments that I do like among the stuff on the island. It's not fully like just a bore fest. I, I think it's still engaging in some parts. But the island stuff is sort of some of the stuff that is just the least interesting of the entire movie. I agree. It, it's just more so... It's just the King Kong story. Yeah. It, and it really is. So I found myself being like, okay, then that's what it is. But then I thought about me thinking about it from a macro point of view. And then I just started thinking about the movie in itself. And, and a more interesting conversation about this movie, if I may. Mm-hmm. Please. Than the actual movie itself. It, I found myself thinking about like this movie in 2005 and its place in blockbuster movies Mm. at its point of view yeah it's a very interesting thought because like there was a point of me when i'm like you could not get away with this movie and not in the same way that we talk about with like some older movies where it's like well you couldn't get away with this movie because of the practical stuff and blah 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 like when you watch this movie they made a king kong movie which is at the end of the day just pretty much a remake of the 30s film mm-hmm. like it, even like it, it follows all the beats it just does a more modern uh i guess like modern mature version right of like all it, the same beats right it, like it does a little bit more with the characters like you know because again the 33 it's like again just like the difference in we've talked about in that 33 films that the, the actors and the characters are very much just like, they're there to get the movie going. Right. And this one, it's like, okay, we have like similar to same characters, but you expand upon them and, and, and get different insights to them. And like the same thing where it's like, hmm. yeah, like the, the original, you're, you're very right in that the original film, you know, it was like the effects of its period, but we're doing like kind of the most modern technology and we're bringing it to life in kind of this most real and new way, like exactly that. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that for some reason for me, I feel like this was like the point in time. And I don't think people realize this at the time, but I don't think people wanted that at the time. Like it, I just, at least right now, I can't imagine like you, pe- like whether the audience or film Twitter or whatever would accept this movie. Mm-hmm. Where because I think like if you made this movie now, everybody would be like, "Well, you're just like doing all the same plot beats as like the the original me, film." Yeah, I think, but 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 it made me think like there was a time when I was watching this movie. This is not, and I should mention, this is not me making a criticism on the movie because mm-hmm. I actually don't have that problem. But when I was watching it, I was noticing that this movie is just basically remaking like all the beats of the previous movie that we know, but in a more modern light. And it was just making me think like, you couldn't get away with that now. Like, I, cause I think there was a mindset where there, that wasn't such a precious thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like when this movie was made, I think that this movie presents a turning point when 
that was okay to do. Yeah, I would say it's like right. Yeah, it's right after this era because I think it's like kind of as we kind of start leading into the later 2010s, that's when I think, you know, but I still think that the thing about it was like, yes, like we had different remakes, but I felt like now we just like, you know, again, the kind of the criticism is that the remake thing is, you know, kind of a almost second nature thing of Hollywood now, right? We're just kind of bringing back all the old hits. Like, I mean, you know, that's the kind of the main criticism of what, like, again, Disney's live action stuff is essentially all that. But like a lot of studios still go back to like, we're, we're bringing this stuff back. I feel like 2005, well, I, there was just like, there was such like, it was such like a slightly different period. And I think, I think there was also a lot of, there was a lot of a, a movie, a lot that was afforded to this movie because it was Peter Jackson coming off Lord of the Rings. But and I, I think that there's an element of that that people will, were excited just based on that. I'm glad you mentioned the the Disney the Disney remake thing because I've often said, while understandably you're a little bit more critical about those than I am, but I I have always said that I think that those movies kind of maintain a mentality that would have been more acceptable in like the early 2000s mm-hmm. i think in like the early 2000s late 90s it was okay like people didn't really have an issue where if you wanted to just remake beauty and the beast beat by beat like it, it just like you it, like people weren't as precious about it mm-hmm. but now it's like there was a turning point where it's like now those movies are way beyond the line where it's like it's kind of weird that they haven't caught on that like audiences at least a portion of the audience don't are going to be more critical of that than not. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what saves King Kong is like, there's a timeless element to King Kong. So like, because let's face it, like, it's not like people don't like this movie. Like people, there, there are the criticisms of it being too long um, and everything, but I just found myself being like, like, I get it. I, I understand the story and with the exception of like, okay, like they did do the characterization of the human characters a little bit better this time, but it took me, first of all, it took me two days to watch this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and then when I watched the second half of it, it still just felt like the original film, mm-hmm. which I'm just not, I, I mean, I appreciate it from like a staple of like culture, but I'm just not, and that's where I just have to be honest. I'm just not as engaged with the story of King Kong. And I don't know if this modern day take did anything to do that while also acknowledging that clearly this is a love letter. Yeah. That Peter Jackson really put some effort into I, it. That's the thing is that you can definitely tell how much Jackson loves the Kong story and like kind of almost the character of Kong and the concept and just the filmmaking. You can tell that all of that is so precious and important that he wants to bring that to the screen. And I think that is at times a benefit and a drawback to the film. I think there are elements of that. I I, I 100% agree where I think it is a benefit because I think in many ways it's a very, um, it's a very faithful adaptation of what the original film was getting at Mm -hmm. but in that it highlighted all the issues that i had with the original film Mm -hmm. more so yeah like for instance it like is this movie like a horror nihilistic exploration of imperialism and discovering unknown lands 
or is it a Beauty and the Beast story? Right. And I understand it can be both, and I agree that it can be both. I have yet to feel that both films, either film, has threaded the needle Mm. perfectly for those two. Mm -hmm. Because one of the thoughts I had in the first half of this film was like, I think they should just make a King Kong movie where it's just a straight-up horror film. Yeah, like really like emphasize kind of the terror of Skull, Skull yeah. Island, yeah. Because otherwise it's like this weird like like and what really what really kind of weirded me out in this one was like the adaptation of like the natives. Oh, okay, okay. I was going to say this when we talked weird. about. So, somehow this movie sort of has the least characterization for all the natives because Jackson sort of makes them these like demon people. Like that's what they're presented as. They're yeah, just no, they're like, like they're like hissing at people, and they're like, yeah, they're these. They're weird... like unnaturally dark skin, and yeah, like, yeah, they're, they're like, like the, convulsing the... during the thing. Like, because at least the original had like a like both of the original and seventy six at least had these natives actually communicate and like negotiate as problematic as it was, and even like the other films, like especially seventy six, really kind of presents the importance of Kong, and like. um the 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 importance of that ritual whereas i felt like this one actually had like the least interesting ritual because it was just very oddly like put together like it really felt like jackson didn't want to like it that was the one part where it felt like like they didn't want to like really deal with the natives but they were also so key to the story that they kind of was like, okay, we'll have to do something with them and well, make them like well, interesting. Well, the, tell- the telling part is that later on in like the end of the like end of Act Two, when they capture Kong and they're back on the, like the shores, they're like nowhere to be seen. Which right? Is kind yeah. Of, like, a weird. Yeah. Because even like because yeah because like because thirty three like they have the big attack on the village, which again sort of talks about sort of the the consequences of their actions. And essentially 76, they just kind of play it where it's like, okay, well, the guns basically scared them all away. Whereas yeah. this one, like, they just, like, after the ritual, yeah, there's just no sign of them throughout the movie. But, and it's just, but, like, the least, it's just, like, it's super odd. And it's kind of that weird thing where it's just, like, they try to kind of brush it, but it makes it just even more problematic in terms of both content of the movie and content of the actual depiction of the, the island natives. Well, it, it's weird because, like, on paper, I don't mind it where, like, they go on and it's this, like, ancient, ageless, evil island where, like, the people on it are kind of, like, mindless. The creatures are always trying to kill you. And there's definitely a nihilistic element to it, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. where everybody just kind of haphazardly dies or they, like, are dying in these gruesome ways. But, like, I don't know. Like, it, it doesn't it does it for me it doesn't land it it, Mm -hmm. it never it was just kind of like especially like when you get to that scene in like like the like in the cavern or in like the yeah and like in like the 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 uh yeah just the cavern with the bugs right yes the insect sequence the the, the big infamous insect scene where it's just like now we're just kind of like picking people off Mm -hmm. um I get it. I get that the movie is getting at this point where it's like it's exploration and it's this unknown and it's like indiscriminately killing you, but it feels nihilistic, but to the point of not even being entertaining. Yeah. Like that's, what's weird. It's like none, none of like the set piece, 
here was my question to you. Maybe other than one, what at what point in the movie would you think would you did you feel like you were entertained in the movie? I mean, it's really the the V Rex sequence. Yeah, like I was like, that's one. probably the the. And the, I I like yeah. some elements of like of Kong's actual escape from the theater. Uh, I like that. I like some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. Like right, later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's I mean because I mean the the V Rex they're not T Rexes by the way they're V Rexes. They're V Rexes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that that is like the main like. I mean that's that is an incredibly put well put together sequence. Like, Great sequence. And, I mean, and, and it's and like I, it's like that's like the ultimate like Kong. Like it's like that's showcasing what you can do with Kong in like the motion capture and CG, where it's like there's three V Rexes attacking him, and he's like choking one, and he's like kicking one with his leg and like holding it. Like there's some pretty sick stuff in that sequence. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I really my, enjoyed some of that stuff. My, my favorite part, I always say about that sequence that I absolutely love, because I agree with you. It's an it's an incredible sequence where it's like, because obviously it's they're remaking the he fights a T-Rex. And then like the, the V-Rex comes up and then it's a second V-Rex. And you're like, oh God, Kong's about to fight two V-Rexes. And then it's like three, two, one fight. It's about to go on. And then a third V-Rex comes in and then you're like, what? Like, so and that's again, like actually a good aspect of remaking that scene like and, and it's like and you can just tell like at this point like jackson just has a real knack for that sort of like big choreography for that type of sequence because the way that that sequence flows with the different all like those three v-rexes and kong and like how he's kind of dealing with each one and like getting the upper hand and then they fall down a cliff and getting stuck in vines like it's a really well choreographed and put together sequence of just entertainment and you just kind of wish that there was a little more of that when like these all these brontosaurus things are like on a rampage or or in that insect sequence later well see but that's the issue it's like i even found like because that is like the infamous action set pieces him fighting the v-rexes but like and i was watching it and i think i actually had an extra one than you did because i watched the extended version but at that point there's just so many big monster set pieces before then mm -hmm. that i was like oh like that it, it did take the teeth out of that scene a little yeah. bit because like again yeah like, i think you have an extra one i think you have like like these that like a water sequence in there so somewhere there, so if i remember correctly in your version that you see did they get attacked by the the triceratops yeah because i think there's like the brontosaurus i think there's the triceratops yeah. So they get in, in, when I watch it, they get attacked by a triceratops. Mm -hmm. I think something else happened, but then there's the big brontosaurus stampede scene. Yeah, which is you, not great. Yeah, and then then they uh, then they uh, go through a remake of crossing the lake scene. Yeah, I think that's I think that's not in my version. That's the big one that I remember that was cut out. Yeah. And then by that point, they get into, and all this. Remember, it's like the they they don't even see Kong until in my version of the film, like an hour and ten minutes in. Right. Yeah. It's still like it's similar. It's like you yeah. don't really see Kong until now. Like, now that I actually don't have that much of an issue. With. No. Like, no. I, I really don't take too too many. Uh, yeah, I don't mind that. But I did have to admit that by the time I got to the V Rex scene, I was just kind of like. All right. 
<laughs> right. And then because it's also because then you have the V-Rex stuff and you also have like Kong. I fi- knew there was just so much more to go. Right. There's like, <laughs> Kong, there's like Kong fighting like the, the, the bat pterodactyl. The bats, and I knew there was like the, the, the insect sequence. Yeah. That insect sequence is really weird. Yeah, it, it really does. Again, it's like, again, that where it's like the love letter to Kong and the history of Kong. It helps this movie and bites it in the butt. And that's the part where it bites it in the butt for me because it's really, again, Jackson being like, oh, well, this was like a scene that they tried to make for the original and it was cut out. So we're going to do my version of it. And yeah, it's just like so much is going on and it's like the giant bugs and like the these like kind of like tentacle things that's swallowing up Andy circus and like eating his head and then jack black is just going all crazy because he's that's so, crazy okay. the entire movie i hate i hate to because you know me i hate to feed in to cliches and cliched criticisms but i do have to get like i have to own up that this movie is probably the most egregious uh it's the most egregious version of people just running around in a cg thing mm. like yeah there are that, i mean that brontosaurus sequence yeah there's the brontosaurus sequence where people are just openly running around and yeah. it's just like they're just they're just like jauntily jogging through the brontosaurus i'm like that's a bra like you could just stroll under this stampede and then there's just like in the insect sequence there's like jack black just like hacking away at like and it just you could just it just feels like there's a bunch of cg stuff on well if i I remember the story about that when they were like that wasn't intended to be in the sequence and then jackson on set was just like oh like jack like just attack a bunch of random things like that wasn't even choreographed and then like jack black was just like oh and then in the finished movie i was like attacking all these bugs right he just basically that was just, just like feel, a momentary just, like inspiration from Jackson, but I get what you're. I definitely get what you mean. It, it it just it just feels that way. I mean, in my opinion, Jackson has never quite handled the putting people on green screen thing well. Mm, yeah, like to this day, I never. I don't think he ever got a handle for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my opinion. Um, because there, it, like, even some of the Andaro getting thrown around stuff is a little sus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It feels like I'm going to be harsh on this film, but I'm not going to lie. When I was watching it, I watched a lot of it on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I, I was a little bit more familiar with yeah. the film. But that being said, I let me go back to the beginning because the beginning was maybe the stuff I remembered the least. Mm-hmm. And I was very engaged yeah. in, the, in that stuff. I loved like... The Jack Black stuff. I love the Naomi Watts stuff. I, I love that, like the how they were characterizing all those. That, yeah, no, I stuff. I really think that this is a you know again a big benefit of the film and a big benefit of making modern is again you just kind of get this a little bit of this modern storytelling and a little bit of this modern characterization. You actually going to get to like see a bunch of these characters and their kind of you know journeys and like where they come from and it does get you a, at least a little bit more invested than you would have been and, and a little bit more just engaged with with what they're presenting with you on screen especially right at the beginning when you kind of are rediscovering these characters and how they're presented in this version of the film and i think you're absolutely right i think they do a lot of really smart stuff in how they establish these characters especially with andaro and with carl dunham uh, to kind of really set the stage for who these characters are. Like, like I'll just get into the Carl. Like, I said in the original that, like, okay, well, it's like he's kind of the, 
you know, kind of smooth talking director where you can see how people like him, but he's kind of an asshole. Whereas in this movie, J- Dunham is an insane man and they kind of present him as just like he's insane for his filmic vision and like he will go to whatever lengths he will say whatever lies he will lie to convince himself that he's doing the right thing like at one point like you know later in the Skull Island stuff like two different times he's just like yeah this guy he believed in our vision yeah, and we're yeah, gonna yeah. donate all the money <laughs> and all the proceeds to his wife and kids and it's like by the second time he says that you could just tell that like no, like he's all in it. Like he's just crazy. He needs something. He needs to justify himself here. Yeah. Um, and it, and it even starts right at the beginning, like his first sequence when he's doing the screening with these like film executives who are not happy with his thing. And he just goes right in. It's just like, you wouldn't have Cecil B. DeMille. Like, you know, th- th- we need to respect the filmmaker. And, like he's saying it right to these people's faces when he knows that that's going to like basically doom him in this production. Yeah, um, it, it is interesting that they they do characterize him as a more unhinged, like like a very like you know an unhinged Orson Welles type. Yeah, and 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 I don't know. It's just it, it, it's very enter, it, it's very entertaining. Jack Black is great as yeah. It. He brings that like great manic energy to yeah. the role that he's known for, but he brings it in sort of a it's like manic but also slightly subdued way that fits sort of like the characterization of this character like again it's like again it kind of goes through where like once he does bring kong back and he's smoozing with all the same executives that wanted to arrest him for stealing the footage that he took and like you know they're all like happy and dappy and like you know he's like a new assistant colin hanks and there's kind of like a, a slight moment where you like think that like he might be reconsidering but then he sees another executive he's like hey like come <laughs> in man, we gotta get pictures and stuff like that and it's just and, it, and that ends up making and I'll, i want i want to say this a little bit later but it does end up making like his big kind of performance on the stage on broadway i think a little bit more like uh, like kind of almost menacing in a way like just some of the stuff he pulls even in, well, in it, that moment one of my one of my favorite bits earlier in the film is um, where he's trying to present. You know, he you know he's a bit of a car salesman. He's trying to like con his way into like getting what he wants a little bit. And you know, he's presenting his movie, and he's like, "Oh, it's going to be like you know exotic and on the scene and blah blah blah." And then one of the producers like, "But will there be boobies?" He's just like boobies. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, you know, uh, like, you know, like melons, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then, I, audiences like, love, audiences love them. Yeah. And then, and then I did think it was funny. And then Jack Black is like, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was funny because I did think that was a good way to characterize the character that he wasn't, he, that's not how he was sleazy. Yeah know that he wasn't sleazy from like a very masculine womanizing way he was more sleazy in the terms of like going manipulating people to get like his dreams done type yeah. of way I-, I thought that was a really smart way of handling that i, I agree i i do kind of like that characterization um but the other the other thing i really liked was obviously like the big highlight was the andero character where they just characterize her in a completely well, they actually characterize her. They give her more of like, mm-hmm. like the more well-rounded uh, idea of who she is. Where she's a struggling actress, but not only do you know she's a struggling actress, you know what type of acting she likes to do. Um, yeah, she's a she's a vaudeville actress. Like, yeah, because like, yeah. the the movie opens up 
with some recreation of like old school title cards, which are, you know, always fun. But then it's like uh, it kind of one of the things that's a benefit of doing a period piece is you have perspective on what happened in the period, whereas the original 33 was like is happening in the moment and just kind of making the movie. So we kind of get a sense of like the world in 1933, you know, in the midst of the Great Depression. Vaudeville is the big thing, but theaters aren't being filled like we're simultaneously like having the poorest people with like the biggest skylines. And it really establishes the world and it establishes where Darrow is, where she's in like. Uh, like she's kind of a struggling actress doing kind of a, a pseudo Charlie Chaplin vaudeville act for a theater that like is only half full with like a bunch of kind of big like drunks essentially and eventually like what happens is her theater closes and like her mentor is moving back to Chicago and she's out on her feet um, and to the point where like she's you know she's a big fan of this Jack Driscoll playwright she's going to try to get his play but the role's already been cast and the the like agent or casting director or whatever is like sending her to burlesque shows to like hey make a little money just pretend you were never there like it'll get you on your feet but she refuses that like she doesn't want to go to that length of like you know putting her body on well, the line and everything so, so that was the other thing too it's like not only do they characterize her this is like you know what her deal is and this is what she's going through but they also add this like wrinkle to her where she's also a very principled person too mm -hmm. where like you know she knows what she wants and then she's given this out where it's like we'll just perform in these burlesque shows and then she won't do that and you know it takes her a little bit of talking to to get onto the crew like onto like the voyage for kong and then even at the end of the film fast forwarding ahead like she has this opportunity where she could either be in the, the presentation with kong or she could be in jack driscoll's play that basically he wrote for her but it turns out that she wasn't part of any of those because she's like a principled person and she's like well she'd rather do have this bit part in something she doesn't want to do than yeah like a two things like yeah. a back yeah she's like literally slinks back to the background and yeah. she's the background in now, some some other person's show all this said and i want to get your opinion on this do you feel at all though that despite all of these really good characterizations i find that despite all of them that ultimately one of the issues is is that because it is the king kong story and you have to tell the king's kong story is that at the end of the day everybody becomes slaves to the archetypes of the king kong story i think yes and no um in a because sense let, to, to just say what i mean is like because we kind of tell the andaro story like she has all of her stuff, but then I find that she kind of gets trapped into being the Andaro in the King Kong story. And I don't know if her journey really tracks, like her journey as a personal character really feeds into a story at large. Yeah. Cause I think being the, the girl that King Kong has. Right. I, cause I think it's one of those things where, I think that that expansion of who she is as a character and, and just the way, cause like you get to see the way that she cares about people, like, you know, her fellow actresses in that opening scene when the theater closes and just the care she has, I think does translate into her relationship with Kong. I, I think my thing is, is that with both of those characters, I think what ends up happening is I think the expansion on their characters ultimately helps flesh out both of their sort of roles in terms of like Anne and her relationship with Kong is definitely expanded upon and definitely I think the best version of that 
of these three, the three main movies of just in terms of like actually showcasing them having a relationship. Cause the main romantic relationship is not between Naomi Watson and Adrian Brody, as the movie would sometimes have you believe it is between Kong and Andaro. Like that's the main romantic relationship in this movie. And I think that they do a well enough job of like expanding upon that story well enough. And I think the same thing with, with Dunham on the Island, I think Dunham on the Island and you see him become more unhinged and he's like doing whatever he can to get the footage and putting people in danger and, and, and making false equivalencies of these people's death to his vision. I think what ends up happening though, is neither of those stories and neither of those journeys get a conclusive end to that extent because of what you're saying is that they, their journeys, I think they do track up until you get to the very end of the movie when you don't get a moment to really have Anne reflect on what's been happening and you just end the Dunham character on the plus beauty killed the beast and you don't feel any of the repercussions and you don't feel like every, everything's really caught up to him. So I think that I, I think the journeys are a little bit more full, but I think that it doesn't come to an end for either of those characters because you have to get to the end of the Kong story. Uh, I agree. Yes. Yes, I, I think I agree. Because cause I'm hard-pressed to say that it's not, that material isn't in the movie. Because mm-hmm. you're right. Like, I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, I feel that they tell the King Kong story. And, you know, when they're up on the, on the, on the top of the Empire State Building and King Kong is dying and... Peter Jackson directs the shit out of it and spends the time over to make you feel it. Like you do feel the fact that like, oh man, like, you know, she cared for this thing or that, you know, there was some sort of connection there. And it's a bummer that this animal is getting killed now. But then it's like, I do find myself being like, okay, but then whiplash Adrian Brody shows up and they embrace each other. And then I'm like, yeah, were they on the, I like, I couldn't like, but like, were they on the outs or were they not? Or like, like I thought like, I think caring about this relationship, but then yeah, it's like, oh yeah, the, these two are a couple. Like it, if anything, the movie just highlighted maybe some of the issues with the King Kong story at large mm-hmm. as a film, yeah, as a film narrative. Well, I think, and I think it's interesting talking about Adrian Brody's character, AKA the badass playwright, because right. he gets so many like weirdly badass moments for like what his character is like there isn't even an implication that he was like oh he like fought in a war or something like no he's just all of a sudden he's like well he fought the predators that one time that was later (laughs) but that isn't that the kind of the funny thing it's like that is kind of a joke about adrian brody is like you don't see him as like that type of well because i think at the again like we're just jumping over the place but like at the end when he's like running into the empire state building and he's like going past all these military guys. And at one point he like, he gets in the elevator and the military yes. guy's like, you can't be in there. And he literally just kicks, like yeah. he kicks the military guy out as the doors are closing. Yes. I, I know. Yeah. You're right. You're but like, right. And even in the, in the, like in when he's in the jungles, like he's just like shooting things and like, like running around and punching things. It's like, you know, and even, 
even like in the rampage of New York, when you know he, he he's literally in a taxi tab and he's like trying to lead Kong on. He's like, "Come on, Kong! Like, come at me! Like, he's like literally like, come, like, come over here! Like, I come, come get me! <laughs> like, like what? Like he's like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger! Like, shoot me, kill me, all that sort of stuff." So, uh, but, and, but I think like- that the, the Driscoll thing, because that's why I mentioned that the film sort of tries to kind of present and does at times present this relationship between Jack Driscoll and Andaro. Like you, you do get the sense that they are, have a budding romance for all that, all, all, all that faults of that. But the thing is the movie does kind of present that, like they don't actually connect because one at, you know, at, after things like the, the, the experience was so traumatic that everybody just goes their separate ways. Cause nobody wants to be associated with denim and, and, and Daro, it's just, I think, so horrified that she just wants to sneak into the shadows. And Driscoll writes this play, which I actually kind of wanted to watch the play. Like, I don't know. I was just interested in kind of like that sort of like weird 1930s, like cross-dressing kind of comedy things. But then he like listens to his own words that he wrote. It's like, you never told her that you loved her. Like, and it's just like, you just assumed. And so he runs after her at the play and the yada, yada, yada. And then even at the end, though, it's not like, again, they don't get the big kiss. They don't get the, like, I big I love you or anything. They literally just, like, embrace in a traumatic moment. Like, sort of like, like the thing I love at the end of Speed, where, like, they don't kiss, but they, like, hug as the train's going well, really but, fast. But, and then they eventually they get, but they, they don't ever present it as, like, like, oh, this romance is going to last. It's just more so like these people do have some sort of connection, which I think is the interesting thing because the way that the movie presents it, like what's the big romantic scene of the movie? It's when King Kong and Andaro have a date at Central Park. Like that is the central right, romantic yes. thing. And, and, the other, and the other big romantic yes. movie at the end, the, the big romantic moment at the end of the movie is when Kong pounds his chest to say beautiful on the, on the New York sun, uh, the sunrise. And, and Andaro realizes that, like, she had said, like, that's beautiful, the same thing at Skull Island, and that they do have a connection. The movie presents Kong and Andaro as the main romantic thing, and I don't think you're supposed to necessarily feel that way uh, in the same way for the Jack and, uh, and uh, Daryl characters. But this is always the problem with the classic King Kong story that I have is that – but then you have this thing where it's like, well, they're connecting, but she's still trying to get away from him. But, oh, but don't kill him, but I'm still going to get captured by him. But he's still sweet. You know what I mean? It's it's mm-hmm. just kind of like this this weird whiplash between the creature feature aspect and the beauty and the beast aspect of it. Yeah. Um, well, because even, even – oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I was going to compliment Sandwich this by saying how great is Kyle Chandler in the film. Okay. I've been waiting to talk about this. Awesome. So he's great. I I am so used to dad mode Kyle Chandler at this point <laughs> because like obviously that's what we get in the MonsterVerse films. That's what we get in like you know whatever like other super stuff. Eight. Like, yeah, Super A, like Night Fri- Friday Night Lights, and even like in uh, Wolf of Wall Street, he kind of yes. has that like you know I'm dad. To see the goofball performance that he yeah. puts on in this movie was such a treat. Like him first getting into his cabin and hanging up all his posters, and then later the one of the, the mustache parts, bit, the mustache yeah. bit, where he goes into the room and he realizes that like the one kid like that's on the ship, like the young kid, 
who's reading Heart of Darkness. And then we get that metaphor later, which not really is a metaphor. He's just explained to us what Heart of Darkness is. Anyways, so he like graffitied all of the posters of like the different movies that Kyle Chandler's character has been in. And then at one point, like he goes up to this other safari poster and the guy drew a mustache on it. And then Kyle Chandler kind of like he's reacting in like horror to all these like, oh, oh, like very comedic ways. And then he sees this like mustache thing and he kind of was like, hmm. And he puts like a comb to his face. He looks in the mirror. He's like, huh, this could actually work. It's so goofy and silly. It's incredible. It's actually a really good comedy bit. It's a really good piece of levity in the film. Yeah. It's pretty clever. Um, That's a really good uh, comedy uh, uh, point in the film. My other favorite little bit of performance from him is like when they come across the brontosauruses. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, oh, he's like getting is like, what's his name? Bruce, Bruce Baxter. Yeah. Is that his name? He's like, get in front of the, he's like, get in front of the camera. Because like, if you're in the shot with the brontosauruses, like people will think that it's real, blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, he gets it. He, you know, he has the gun and, and clearly he's like a cowardly actor. And he's like, he's like, oh, he's like, I don't know about this. So he gets in front of the, the camera. And then when the brontosauruses are getting like agitated, he he kind of like casually strolls off of the camera like out of like the frame of the camera and then he runs away yeah i just love that comedy bit that even in his cowardice there was still a level of him that would be like all right gotta gotta you know gotta perform for the camera so people perform for the camera (laughs) later down the line is like like you know brody calls him like i knew i i always thought you were a coward like you know i never i never i thought you weren't never were the macho person on screen he's like listen man like i just play heroes on screen the rear heroes they're like fat and balding like i don't i don't know i'm not anywhere close to those guys like he's just like listen i'm just an actor and i say and, and he's like you know and then he's like listen like we're all very sad about this girl who went missing. We'll cry about her when we get back. Well, let's just all survive and let's get out of here. And then, you know, it's fun. It's really fun seeing him in this type of role. Like, I really, you know what, though, really like him. I, I have to be honest. I kind of sympathize with the characters in that point of view. At least I, I sympathize to the point, like, I think people should give those guys not that hard of a time. No, I, I, it's like, you don't know, like if you were in that situation, you got to start thinking about stuff like that. Right. You're like, like, it's like, wait a minute, this person could be dead. Like, mm-hmm. are we sure that we want to go deeper in the forest where we just keep on dying or do we just go back? Because, because Baron Strucker didn't fucking care. No. Who he is never... apparently like the nice tough guy but then it's kind of like a dick out of nowhere. And then it's a nice guy again. So Baron Strucker, I'm just going to call him Baron Strucker. Baron Strucker is like the captain of the, of the ship. Yeah. And he is like, you know, presented as the tough and nails captain who has the heart of gold is like, kind of like what his thing is. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he's always going to look after his men and, you know, anybody who puts his men in danger, he's like, that's what he, um, he, he, he always is like, he always puts like the his men's safety first. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you're in trouble, he always it, it just struck to me right now that two or three times in the film, he pulls a Han Solo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all- and then though, then like Jack Black is basically like, but also you're like the greatest animal capture in the world. Right. I yeah. And That's he like, like he he appeals to like his like darker side where it's like 
but think about the, the price you could get on this giant monkey, huh? Like, it, so didn't you find that weird? And then he all of a sudden started doing that, and I'm like, like that seemed like not who he was for the rest of the film. And then even in the middle of that scene, I guess he just remembered. He's like, wait a minute, this isn't my character. And then even then he was like, wait a minute, no, let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that was really weird. Other than that, I did like that character. I thought like... I thought he played it really... I thought it was a fun way to do the captain character and just like kind of the 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 uh, sort of, again, just sort of like the the guy who's like kind of, you know, initially getting over his head where it's like, listen, like, what, what are we doing? Like, where are we going? You're saying we were going to sing, you know, he maybe kind of is the only one that kind of knows, but like that once the crew kind of gets on board, he's like, yeah, like, and guess what? You're, you're, you're having a warrant out for your arrest. We are turning back, you know, and then finally right, they get right, the squad. Yeah. And then he's like, we're focused on, you know, getting like, we're got, like, listen, you got 24 hours. We're getting out of here. And then, you know, he's convinced to like by Kyle Chandler, like, let's get everybody out. But then, yeah, he's kind of his darker side. Um, and I also I, I, think by by nature of the story, it's kind of a bummer that all those characters just kind of disappear for like the third act of the film. Yeah, it's true too. Yeah. Like poor Jamie Bell, the thing <laughs> is a, he, his mentor just gets killed. That whole that was the that relationship was to me very kind of like Jackson trying to do like the we're gonna like make you care about like the side characters in Lord of the Rings yes. type of thing yes. where it's like we're gonna really make you care about this except that one was just very oddly put together I think because again like you I I've been joked Can about I, before well, but you you, you sorry, get this thing ahead, where yeah. like the kids like look I I got I brought in a book from the library and it's Heart of Darkness and then like later when they're first getting the island we just get an explanation of what Heart of Darkness is all about where it's like. They're not going on like, th this is not an adventure book, is it? No, jackass, it's not. It's about like, like, I just like love, I, I do love stuff like that, but it's also kind of ridiculous when he's like, why does he keep going? Why does he keep going into the jungle? And the guy's like, he, there's a part of him that knows, Johnny. Like, I'm, I, I wrote my dissertation on Heart of Darkness, so I know everything there is to know about the book. Can I make one really dumb nitpick or like kind of like thing i noticed in the movie by all so, means so they kill the sound guy who's not who's not driscoll no <laughs> remember that that whole gag yeah where like ann thinks it's like you know that's driscoll but it's not mm -hmm. but anyway so the villagers the natives of the island kill the sound guy mm -hmm. and that's supposed to be the big like oh they fucking killed somebody and that's a that's a shame now i don't know if this happened in your version but in my version, they they kill another guy. They bash his head in. No, that does not happen in my so version. That happens in my version. They like put a guy like on like the little pedestal and they they like bash oh shit. They bash his head open. And then so that later on in the film they do the whole thing where, you know, they're on the boat and Jack Black does the whole like, oh, like he died for what he believed in. And we're going to finish this movie in his name. We're going to give the proceeds to his wife, to his uh, wife and children. And then I was just sitting there. I'm like, I'm pretty sure two people died. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just kind of weird that I was right. watching them. And I'm like, maybe that's why I was cut out of the movie because it's like, they just completely ignore this other guy. This other poor bastard. He's got his head bashed in. I just, it doesn't uh, remind me. I do like, cause eventually again, the cameraman dies later. And then Black gives the same speech, and that's when like his assistant, like Colin Hanks, yeah, uh, is basically like, hmm, I don't know about this anymore. 
But I did like there's that one moment where like Black's uh, Dunham seems concerned and he just turns to his cameraman. He's like, I think we'll take the wide shot here. Oh, I thought that was great. I actually yeah. thought that was a fun line. And then and then we got to see the old cool's camera, which was really fun. No, he, I, I think the line was like, do you want to do the 60 millimeter or whatever? He's like, I think the wide angle will do just fine. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. Like that's that's that was a good line. I yeah. Like that mm-hmm. I, I, I do want to. I want to talk about kong and skull island a little bit mm-hmm. um let's just talk, let, let me ask about kong itself yeah so the titular character kong um it's interesting because there's a minor criticism and it's not necessarily a criticism it's more of just like a commentary on like when you get into these different iterations of these monsters but the big thing about this kong is that it really is just a big gorilla. Yeah. And I've heard people not really take that much offense with it, but I have heard the people, there is a section of people who do prefer Kong to be more of a like Toho type, like creature, Mm -hmm. like more of like a big, like bipedal ape type creature that we've seen in the old Kong movies that we see in like the newer Kong movies and everything. And and I have heard the the slight criticism that if you make him just kind of like this giant ape, it takes away from the mystique of him being like an otherworldly creature. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of that that I kind of understand. Like, I, I kind of get that because when they're saying all the business about like, there's a creature here unlike anything you've ever seen. And like, you know, and it's like one of a kind and you, and you, and it's like, it, it's unlike anything else on the Island. And then you get to the Island. I mean, there's like T-Rexes on this Island. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But all that being said, like, I, I, I still can't help, but do, I do give it credit for just this version of King Kong. Like I, I, it, you know, I, I think it, I don't know. I, it didn't bother me in the long run. No, I think, I think it works. I think it works for Jackson's vision. I think it works as, you know, I think that they don't avoid him having sort of those slight like connections with, with Anne. And like, again, like the sort of the beautiful moment and the moment where he, like even the initial moment where they're taking in the sunset on Skull Island, you, you still get the sense that there is a little bit more to him than just being a gorilla. But I think, what it really helps, especially with the CG and the motion capture is just the movement and the way that Kong actually exists within the world. I think that is very much a benefit of this version of Kong. Um, yeah. I think for me, once he became, once it became really more about the performance and those quieter moments where he's just like sitting down and interacting with her, that's when the the magic started to appear. I mm-hmm. thought in the motion capture element and the Andy circus performance. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, it's like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, at this point in our history of film, it's like an understatement to, to praise Andy circus for like the ways in which he's, you know, brought kind of these motion capture roles to life. And obviously we know that it's all not, it's like really Andy Circus in combination with with the effects team at Weta Digital and everything. But like between Gollum, between this, and between the the 
the not the 2001 Planet of the Apes movie, <laughs> um, which is its own thing, but like the recent Planet of the Apes movies. Um, I uh, it, it's just it's understatement to be said that like Andy Serkis is just fantastic in well, these types I, of roles, I, and I think like he he whatever it is, it's like he adds such a layer to Kong in this movie, and it's undeniable that he does. I I think the reason I say that it's probably is the performance of the movie and the reason it is thankless, because obviously I think anybody would acknowledge like those little character beats in those moments are probably the result of performance capture. But I think that there is a level where people will just think that any time that Kong is acting like a gorilla, that that's just animators like replicating gorilla stuff. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to a certain extent, yes. But like when Kong, like everything you see of Kong, to my understanding, is also performance based off of like yeah. circus stuff. I, I mean, if, so if you, you have this actor basically pitch perfectly pretending to be a gorilla <laughs> yeah and like if you like 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 with lord of the rings like this movie if you happen to get like a the blu-ray copy like which you know like you can find some of that stuff online as well there is very extensive behind the scenes on the making of this movie and it's very there's lots of different footage and lots of different photos of andy circus playing a gorilla and playing with, King with, Kong with, with his big, uh, like arm stilts that he uses Yeah, like with his that. arm stilts yeah. and the way that he moves and reaches. And again, it's just like, you can see it just in the performance and, and the nuances of the performance. And especially in those quieter moments, you can definitely see what circus brings to the role. Now that being said, so the Kong itself, I give a thumbs up skull Island. So this is very interesting. It made me be like, Oh yeah. Yeah, I like Kong Skull Island. I think well, obviously next time there's going to be a lot of discussion on this, but I uh, having watched all of these movies, there is a 100% no doubt that the best version of Skull Island is in Kong Skull Island. It's the ultimate version of what that island should be. Yeah. That is what's presented in the next film we're watching. Well, it's just like this version of Skull Island, I get it. Again, it gets back into this, like, it's this nihilistic ecosystem that's also the 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 land that time forgot. So yeah. it's got dinosaurs. But it, it, you know, it's funny that when you watch the whole thing, the dinosaurs almost seem out of place. Yeah. Like it's more so this reptile insect world mm-hmm. that is just, like, so nihilistically will just eat you whenever. Right. But, but it's also, like, drab. It, it doesn't feel like... It, there's nothing it, like I never felt like ooh like we we found Skull Island and and you can tell that they're going for it. like I don't know I, I felt like tonally they never nailed exactly the right engaging feeling with how you should feel Percent. about Skull Island. Yeah, no, I I, I don't disagree. There, there's this very much like kind of yeah. There's this sort of like a um the general like yeah land of time forgot journey to the center of the earth type feel that these movies try to capture but it just doesn't it it really doesn't really come to life in the way that like skull island does and i even think that there's elements of obviously it's not as filled to the brim but there are elements of the way that it's presented in 76 that i kind of like as well um not like to the extent of it having full of creatures because we know that movie really oh it's only kong and that snake thing but just kind of the aesthetics of the island and the fog that surrounds it in that 76 version, I really do come to like. 
I, I mean, the the one kind of ge- geographical thing, I do like the image of how the shoreline is barricading out the rest of the island. Mm-hmm. Like, I just kind of, like, from a concept version, I do like that. Yeah. Like, the fact that, like, they build a wall from that, that separates the beach from, like, the rest of, like, the yeah. forested island. Like, that's kind of cool. How, yeah, but how about how, like, all the rocks on the outside of the island look like skulls, not just one like yeah. that was the whole thing too where it's like they literally like they like keep cutting to all these rocks and they all look like like screaming faces and yeah, like, even okay. the ones like all the way out in the sea they look yeah. like skulls yeah i like yeah that's that's crazy but yeah it just reminded me of like where i don't know i just kind of like miss the artful purposeful nature that jordan vote roberts does with skull island like whereas this just is kind of like a dangerous ecosystem um which just becomes too much, I feel. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. like it just becomes like bugs are crawling everywhere and everything is trying to kill you. No. You I never do. get it you never get a chance to really like a pre like what's weird is like they have this scene where you find dinosaurs and then you're like, I don't know, you just don't nothing ever feels in this movie like it's like, oh my god, there's this on this island. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just a product of me sitting on this movie for a while i don't know help me out here am i am i crazy or no i don't think you're crazy i I think that there's a lot of elements but like i think we've just said that i think we both find that the skull island stuff barring like for me like barring the v-rex fight which is like genuinely an incredible sequence of filmmaking and some of the moments between ann and kong um and one bit of the last little moment of, of the Skull Island stuff. Like, there's really not much to take in on the island. Because I do like the way that they present the relationship between Anne and, and Kong in this movie. Like, Yes, I know. I, I, I'll agree and, with you. And, like, I like that, like, you know, Anne's whole thing, especially early in the movie. Like, there's a scene early on in the movie where, like, when Jack Black's, like, trying to convince her to go on the island like I can see it. You're you're one of the saddest actresses I've ever met. You're gonna make them weep, and she says, "No, I make them laugh." I did like how that translated into like the way she she tries to kind of appease Kong as she does her vaudeville act to him, which I thought was kind of like a nice little like that's her bit is that she she feels like she's best at making people laugh and you know what? enjoy I, themselves. I, I didn't I didn't think of that. I mean, obviously textually I understood that, but like when you put it from that point of view from a character perspective. I didn't think about that. Yeah. And, and I do like some of that stuff. That. I, I also did. One of the things I did like is I kind of liked at the end of the sequence of the Skull Island sequence when they first try to like chloroform Kong and try to get him. I like that it doesn't work at first, which I kind of found very funny that they it literally like kind of fails and Kong chases after them. And then just because I think it won, it kind of was like a nice beat where you're kind of like, oh, shit, like it didn't work. Um, and then you kind of get the moment where like, like Carl Dunham is really going for it all. And he's like, I- I'm getting something out of this no matter what. And he's the one who, who takes down Kong. And I, and I did like the moment where they're like, like, fuck it. Like, let's run. Even though it is kind of funny that, that the way it goes, I did like that kind of thing. Um, also, I do got to mention, uh, I liked the well, I liked when Andy Serkis's chef just starts shooting the giant mosquitoes. Oh, that was funny. I did like, like, just like, that's a very kind of Peter Jackson type of humor moment. Yeah. That's like this type of stuff that you would kind of like that still kind of is like 
in a different way, like that sort of humor that he had and stuff like the Frighteners and Meet the Feebles and Beautiful Creatures, just like kind of those little kind of weird moments. Uh, I did enjoy that. Well, you know, it's funny because it's really easy to forget that like even the Lord of the Rings movies have like these really funny moments of comedy mm-hmm. in them. Like I actually think like especially Lord of the Rings movies have like some of the best comedic drops like the both like uh, comedy relief moments ever of a blockbuster yeah like the you know that still only counts as one like that that's like one of the best comedic drops it's a great line yeah um and yeah there were there were some there were some in this there was also a cute one where andy circus is like there's only one creature that could leave this mark the abominable snowman (laughs) he's so confident that's the best part he's like incredibly confident like that's what we're dealing with here an abominable snowman um i do want to mention before like we start wrapping up uh i do want to mention some of the you know post island stuff because i really i again i i i think that jackson is nowhere near like the perfect filmmaker i think that especially kind of in modern times i think you know it's just sort of like some of his stuff, you know, just has some of its issues. But I think he still has some incredible moments as a director. And I really genuinely like the way he directs the sort of big presentation of Kong mm-hmm. uh, to the audiences. I thought this whole sequence was well, really well put together. I, I like the thing where it's like, you at first you just see Anne in her dressing room and you see like the advertisement that like she's going to be there. And then you kind of think, Oh, she kind of sold her soul for whatever. And she's kind of regretting this. And then the reveal that like the, the girl is not like uh, Anne and she's just, again, in the background somewhere I thought was really great filmmaking. I like that Kyle Chandler is presented as like the big hero of the Kong story, um, which oh, I think, I mean that whole kind of like New York, stage presentation of kong like the thing about this film is like peter jackson for i don't even think for better or for worse i i think he really just nails how to capture with a modern sheen that how the old film felt Mm -hmm. so there is a little bit the reason i don't mind some of like the the special effects and maybe a dated special effects here or there is that the artifice of it feels authentic because Mm -hmm. that is kind of like how the old one is. So like there's a shiny sheen to the Broadway New York aspect of everything, especially in the third act. Yeah. And that, but that feels authentic to what King Kong should be. Yeah. And I, I do feel like just the way that he, like he has uh, Dunham present, you know, and kind of the theatricality of the way Dunham presents the whole story and again, sort of that sleaziness of like when he says like the bravest woman I ever met, Anne Darrow, and then you realize it's not Anne. And he, again, right. he's still even in this, he's still putting on a farce. Right. And, you know, and it's like this whole thing where it's like, you know, they Colin, Colin Hanks, try, you know, he has a scar from what he is. And he's in like when Brody, Adrian Brody shows up, he's like, yeah, he's right. Like they all they'll all go for the mystery for the price of an admission ticket. And like, you know, and, and he's like, listen, like. That's the thing about Dunham. He basically knows how to tear apart everything that he loves. Like, and there's this, this whole little bit where it's like Dunham is looks so proud on this, this bastardization of everything that he has. Cause he thinks that he's finally made it. And then when things blow up on him, uh, you know, he, he like, they don't give him the moment of like really showing that he knows the consequences, but there is a sort of like 
really everything's fucked for him now. Right. Uh, like Kong, like tearing up the theater, I think was great. And like him seeing Adrian Brody, like mm-hmm. in the theater, like and confronting him was like, I thought was a really fun, like, oh damn moment. I, I did like the kind of immediate aftermath where like Kong's out in New York and kind of confused all the cars are getting him. And, and again, we get badass playwright, Adrian Brody, like pushing people out of cars and like, like, come at me go you want it's me that you want that type of thing do it do it do it it. yeah exactly um so i think i i I thought that some of that was like fun and like again kong just like picking up every woman that looks like Anne and tossing them aside was like just still like great stuff but to that that point like also the extension to that is like that that quiet moment when Anne shows up and it's just kind of like both of them on a quiet new york street in the middle of all the chaos mm-hmm. excellent like yeah that that stuff is like legitimately great right and, and again it's like that moment where Anne is like in shadow and, and jackson sort of shows her as kind of the angel and shining light to kong and he kind of but, calms down but again so this was all an example of like it was really here where i was thinking like he really is making a really solid recreation love letter to king kong like this is what it is like i'm not even gonna say like he didn't do it well like this is the story of king kong he's directing the shit out of it he's spending time where he needs to spend time on we can get into the length of the movie in a little bit but it made me think of like i don't know if the issue is him it makes me think some things about him as a director but it made me more think about the story of king kong yeah and i'm like i don't know I don't know if this, what place this movie has. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. You know um, I mean? Yeah. And, and I think, cause I think you're right. Like there's a lot of what Jackson does as a director. That's super impressive with this movie, mm-hmm. but it is again, like the, the more you talk about it, like the more I kind of agree that like, yeah, it's just sort of just the, the need to tell the story as it is. For is instance, like, when he gets on the top of the, the empire state building, that moment objectively is perfect. Mm-hmm. But why is it kind of like, yeah, okay. Like he, like, well, that, that my, is what it should be. My, <laughs> like, my, my thing, I mean? my thing about it though is like, and this is where I, I don't know if this is a hot take, but it, it kind of goes into your point of being yeah. the slave to the original film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the biplane sequence is just not an exciting way to end the movie. It's just no, not. No, it's not. It's just, I, I completely it, it, agree. It, like, it kind of is like one of those things that it's the one part that you can just argue does not adapt well to a modern sensibility. Like, like you feel like, like you. There's a shot when he gets up to the, on the top of the building and he starts peating his chest and then the, and then the score blares and then you see the wide shot of him. And then you kind of feel like, the movie is done in mm-hmm. a way like when that happens and this kind of gets into everything i've said about the iconography of king kong when you've seen that like it's this weird meta aspect of it that once you've seen that the movie is over mm-hmm. because you've kind of just that was the last thing you didn't see in the king kong story is him up on the building and now that you've seen him up on the building you're like okay that's it. That's the last piece of imagery we haven't seen. And most of King Kong is now iconography and imagery. So then when we see him that way, it's like the movie is done. Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know. Like it was a real, that's kind of like how I looked at it. 
And I feel kind of like weird that I look at it that way. And I understand that it's not a fair way to look at it because there's plenty of other iconography, especially if you get into the Godzilla realm or the superhero realm where Mm -hmm. like, admittedly, I'm a little bit more susceptible to it. But if I'm being honest, that's just kind of how I felt. Well, I mean, but the the thing about that is like, again, despite what anybody else may say, like, and I, I was thinking about this too, when I was watching this, like, this is really the first time we've ever really truly talked about kind of like a straight remake of something. Cause even with the, with the Godzilla films, like, yes, like you could consider like Godzilla 1984 kind of like a remake, but it's also not, it's a sequel and it does right. different things and it does tell a different story. It's not like, yes, Shin Godzilla is like, kind of like in many ways recreating this sort of feeling of the original 54, but it's not 54. It's telling its own story. Yeah. And even like, if people want to say that like, Oh, superhero movies are all the same. They're not like each Marvel movie, each DC movie, each independent cinema movie, the boys and all this sort of stuff, like invincible, like they all have their own feelings. Even if they do tell similar things or have similar things, they all have their own flares. And that's the thing about when you do a straight up remake, right? It's just, there is going to be this inevitability of you are sort of on a path and you have to stick on that path. And like, I mean, that's what I, I mean, and go back to the Disney thing, because that's just sometimes what I think about. The most interesting of those Disney remakes are the ones that do forge their own path. Mm-hmm. And they do, they do do their own thing. And the ones that I have the least amount of interest are, are stuff like Beauty and the Beast on The Lion King, where it does feel like they're beholden to the music and beholden oh, yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah. the iconic, the iconic costumes. Where yeah. it's like, look, I haven't seen Cruella yet, and I know there's been a bunch of discourse about it, but hell if that's not the most interested I've been in one of these in a long time, because it's just doing something different. It's more on the Godzilla side of like, we're telling, we're giving you some iconography. We're giving you some, you know, ideas and moments that you would associate with this character, but we're also still doing different things with it. And that's what I feel like think about the biplane stuff is just like at the end, you're, you're very much right. Like it's just not an exciting way to end the movie. And you're just kind of like at that point, you're doing like the, okay, well, we're just waiting for him to get shot down, right? Like, that was a thing that was refreshing. Play, play about, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that was a refreshing thing about 76, like, when because yeah. it was, like, the World Trade Center, and he's jumping from tower to tower, and there's, like, flamethrower things, and there's a little bit more just excitement and, like, wonder of, like, what, what how he's going to go do it. And even that movie, when he, like, has that moment where, like, he knows he's going to die, and Kong kind of has that in this movie, but, like, he just basically, like, you know, he's able to swipe down three planes, which is kind of neat, but then he just kind of gets shot and they fall. But, but what I was going to say is like, but all the, I agree with 100% what you're saying, but at the same time, Jackson is not wrong for doing it. I don't think oh, he is. He's because, no. Yeah. Cause it's, I think that there is some room and some validity into making the definitive modern version of the King Kong tale. And I can see in a room, especially if you're behind the scenes and making the movie where you finally get to the end scene and he's on top of the thing. And we're like, we achieved it. We achieved the ultimate, like, this is like, this is like one of the ultimate cinematic monster moments. And we recreated it in a modern context. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there's a world in which that's fine. And that gets me into one of the other big elephants in the room, the Kong size elements in the Uh, elephant in the room is that the movie i'm sorry to say because it's a cliche argument but i i feel like it stands true the movie is just way too long (laughs) it it is 
<laughs> absolutely just, is. And I, and you know me, I think we've talked about this. I love a long movie. Listen, I actually do. Like, I, I love, I love a movie that's like two and a half, three hours long because it's like this weird, comprehensive epic of a movie, whether it's like, you know, Aquaman or Blade Runner, the, the, the Blade Runner 2049 or whatever. Like I even liked it chapter two because it was like, it was just long and you get like this whole journey with it. But with this, it just feels like it's a long movie of just a bunch of different, like weird set pieces strung together. You don't. And then once the Island stuff starts, you don't learn anything really more about any character. You don't feel like you're being on a journey like it just doesn't feel like comprehensive right and it just feels long and and then by the time that like the v-rex sequence happens by the time they get to new york by the time he's on the top of the building you're like yes finally he's there <laughs> i always go back hey it yeah. was just that's how i felt when, when i when i think about long movies i always think of this as like i mean the general thing i have about movies is like you know if you're enjoying a movie or if you're invested any of those types of flaws, you know, generally type to disappear. And like the thing about long movies is like, if you're enjoying it and you're into it, you don't feel the length. Like, and, and my, my go-to example always is Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas versus my opinion on Martin Scorsese's Casino. Both three hour long movies. Yeah. Goodfellas, I can watch anytime because it's an incredible, it's just an incredible piece of cinema it's engaging. Ray Liotta's great. The performances are great. The storytelling is great. Every moment feels like it matters. So when I watch that as a three-hour movie, doesn't doesn't ever affect me. Doesn't make I never think about it as a three-hour movie. Casino, on the other hand, is kind of like the violence doesn't really get to like the violence doesn't really do it for me. The story doesn't really do it for me. That's a movie where I feel the length, but by the time I'm in the middle of casino, like I just can't watch that movie because I feel like it's too long. Mm -hmm. And King Kong, unfortunately, like it doesn't fall all the way into that casino thing where I just, I can't watch it. Cause I think there are elements of this movie that I do really enjoy taking in, but this is a movie where I feel the length, especially once we're on skull Island and we're just kind of going through all these action sequences, there is a point where you're right. Like, you're just like kind of feeling like, okay, like this movie is feeling long. Like, and I think like you just feel the length of this movie at times. And the set pieces are good, but not got that great. I'm going to be honest. Outside of, outside of V-Rex. Yes. Like again, like outside of V-Rex. And for me, like the, the theater slash aftermath of the theater, yes. which I do enjoy, like those are the two big like things that are engaging in that work and everything else is like, they're good to okay. And there's just not engaging enough all the way through. And I think that that's like, I think the, the trying to get the middle ground between nihilistic, dark, like adventure movie where people are getting killed and fun adventure movie mm -hmm. i don't know i think what happened personally is that the the difference was split but not in a fun way but in kind of mm -hmm. like a cold way mm. so for instance in the scene during like the brontosaurus scene where the stampede scene people are just kind of getting killed but it's mm -hmm. also not fun Right. It's just kind of like like they're getting like knocked in the walls and yeah stuff. it's just kind of like chaos and and but you also don't feel like the danger of it and not necessarily because it's a cg thing it's mm -hmm. just because it's like the energy of it is like you just know that like the random people are going to get picked off right and 
And then that's kind of, I guess that's kind of what it is. Because I do want to make it clear, like, I, I think that, again, the special effects element is not, I think that's the, that's the lazy kind of criticism of the film. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I could just as easily say, like, here's the thing. I thought 33 had some great visual effects and I still had kind of the similar criticisms about how the story was conducted. Yeah. Like where it's just like, other than the V Rex sequence in Kong, it was just kind of, kind of dull in terms of character from moment. Right. To moment. And I, I, like you, because I think people will use the visual effects stuff as like a crutch of like, that's why the action isn't interesting. Well, that's not the case. No, it's because of the way that it's presented. It's like the same way of like the best Marvel action and the worst Marvel action. Right. It's yeah. like the, like the, the Marvel action of like, Listen, and I love elements of Thor the Dark World, but there's like the action in the first half of Thor the Dark World versus like the last stuff in Endgame, which I know is like very different mm-hmm. or like or a better kind of smaller example, like the stuff at the end of or the stuff at the beginning of Thor the Dark World versus the stuff in Doctor Strange. Like there's just a different engagement in how those action sequences are presented, even though they're both very kind of CG and kind of effects heavy. Right. And, but it's like within this whole movie, like the V-Rex sequence is genuinely engaging, has a bunch of fun, badass moments. Like it's a great brawl. And again, like Kong's like choking one V-Rex and he's, he's like kind of choking the other with like his foot and he's trying to fend off the other with his other arm. Like it's great stuff. It's genuinely an amazing piece of filmmaking. Like when I was looking up stuff on YouTube for like, you know, helping to get quotes and stuff like that uh, universal upload, that whole fight. And it has almost 200 million views. And like, just because it's like, it's such a fun fight to watch and it is a fun part of the movie to watch, but it's just kind of surrounded by all these other ones that just don't have that same energy. And if these ones had that same energy, I think this would help the movie's length even better. What, what works about that scene too is that not only is just the pr- the pure on paper surface level aspect of him fighting three T Rexes just kind of awesome and cool, yeah. but like you you there is a little bit of character in it because like all of it is in service to protect Anne, right? Um, and I think a way that other... Anne even Anne how Anne runs in that and how yeah. she takes in the fight is great. I think that's the... a really effective. And then the other thing too is like the, and then you, you get to see Kong in his element. Like there's a little bit of like, this is what he does every day. Like, you know, that he has to fight creatures like this all yeah. the time. And, so and it, it just, shows it you, yeah. works. and it shows you Kong at his most powerful, which right. I think is great. Whereas like after like the third scene of like bugs and reptiles eating random mm-hmm. members of the crew, like yeah. you just get it. Like you're like, okay. Like, understand. But in a weird way, and this is why I can't wait to talk about Skull Island when we get there, because in some ways it, it, it does a similar thing, but it just feels so much more interesting to me. And I didn't feel, I didn't know I had such a passionate opinion about that until I watched this film. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound like I didn't like this film. And I should say I didn't, maybe the way that I'll put it, I don't love this movie, but in the same way that I may not, like, but it more so because it's just like, I think it just proves my apathy to the traditional Kong storyline. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely... But, but while yeah. also acknowledging the strengths that Jackson did bring to this version, uh, name uh, specifically the Andy Serkis motion capture Kong, um, the recreation presentation and the love that Jackson puts in to it, mm-hmm. um, I think is really good. And I think the the effort to characterize some of the characters a little bit more so than the 30, the 1930s film is commendable. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think this is a good movie overall. Like, I think that 
despite the flaws that we've talked about, I think that there is a lot to like. And I think you're very much that Jackson's passion for the material and is just again for all the flaws that Jackson may have at times as a director, like his strengths really shine in the best parts of this movie, especially kind of in his like kind of post Lord of the Rings era where he's very much like this effects heavy filmmaker, which he always was, but there's this just a difference between like the way that he used effects in like beautiful creatures and brain dead and the frighteners and like after Lord of the Rings and did this and King Kong. Um, but I think like some of the best of Jackson is on display here. The passion is, is very set and there are some very fun elements uh, to take in and the, the, for the, the, the effects are great. Some of the character stuff is great. The performances are great. So this is a good movie that I just think it just has some flaws that prevent it from being like an actual great movie. Uh, before we get to any aftermath stuff, I do want to mention, um, I, 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 I need to mention that like Jackson also does a lot of cheeky references to Kong and Kong lore. Oh, can you, I, I know, I think I know one. This one made me laugh. Which one? Right. You, you can tell. Or do you want me to say the ones that I so, like? So at one point in the film, towards the beginning, um, I forget what actress they had, but like, you know, they're saying like, all right, well, we have like our lead actress on the picture and right. we're about to set sail. And then they say like, oh, well, she dropped out. So then... Um, what they talk, they talk about like a bunch, like the, you need someone that fits in a size four dress. Right, and, right. And like they talk Jack, Jack Black is like, well, what about this person? And they're naming off like a bunch of like, you know, the the, the great actresses the of the great 30s. actresses of the time. And then they's like, well, like it's like, what about what about Faye? <laughs> and yeah. then they're like, oh, well, you know, she's doing like a picture with RKO. And he's like, Cooper. <laughs> like, he's like, Cooper, I should have known. I should have known. And I was like, that was the weirdest meta reference I've ever heard in a movie ever because so basically the the like just the reference is it's supposed to be a reference a, a, a cheeky reference to Faye of uh, Faye like, Ray Faye Ray who was the lead actress in the original Kong film yeah and then and, and Marion C Cooper yeah, and Marion C. Cooper and RKO Pictures, and that's like the original call. So, which is funny because the argument you could make is that they're actually talking about the most dangerous game, which, if you remember, was right. also in simultaneous production with Kong. That's um, true, but there was also a little bit of me where it was like this weird reference, like that they're actually making <laughs> a King Kong movie. Yeah, <laughs> or like uh, so, but some, some that, was a, that was actually my favorite little cheeky. Reference. See mine, like I like that one a lot, but mine is definitely when they're filming on. The That's ship. my second one. Yes, they're <laughs> filming on the ship, and they literally take the dialogue, like the exact dialogue and the scenes, um, like from the original Kong film, where you know when when Anne and the first mate in that movie, they're like talking that when when the first mate's like I I hate women and right. whatever, and where then he's like, he's like, can you believe that we're on a cruise? And then he's like, it would have been better if there's no women on board, like right. it's like or something. Right. Like that. And then what I loved about it is that the whole thing about it is that Kyle Chandler's character was improvising, and they wipe it away, or it's like. Yeah, well, 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 Baxter feels like, you know, you have to say that you hate a woman before you really like her. Like, there's like an ironic humor to it, I guess. Like, there's like, yeah, kind of, it, like they like, so like, like dismiss that part of the original film, which I absolutely love. No, but even better, not only do they dismiss it, but they use it as the the relationship building impetus 
for those two characters getting together. Yeah. Like, it actually becomes a key part of their flirtation. Yeah, it, which it's is very really funny. Which I think is very great that it's like kind of out, outright kind of dismissing that, which I thought was was very funny. Uh, yeah, I like that. That th- those two, I I like those two cheeky references. I thought mm-hmm, they were good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also like the part where when they're talking about at the beginning when they're talking when the film executives about like what they're what are they going to do with uh with the with the with the footage that he said it's like well universal is always looking for stock footage and i'm like of course get that get that universal branding in there uh that's always fun uh but yeah then the the movie ends of with it's the same way that it always does with which was beauty yield the beast and all this sort of stuff so kong is dead and that's yeah. the end of the movie yeah um oh and oh and i was gonna say sorry the last thing is that uh, it is peter jackson and rick baker that actually kill kong in this movie uh, that they are the ones on the the plane because Rick Baker remember did the effects for the seventy six Kong he did actually also do some makeup work for them on this movie and so it was uh, that and also in the presentation at New York at at the on the Broadway they play the original Kong score um, including what we use as our theme uh, which I thought was was very nice yeah that um, was cool even though I didn't really like the the score of this movie uh, it's kind of weird kind of very very low key for other than other than like a few choice moments i yeah. thought like they were like but there was nothing like really yeah but that was like because it was like it. supposed to be howard shore who did all the lord of the rings films and then they like him and jackson had a falling out oh but, so uh because i did cause, not know that because shore is like the conductor at the broadway presentation because he was supposed to do the score and then they had to replace the score seven weeks before the premiere, so they got James Howard Newton to do it, right. and oh, okay. it's it's fine. All right, um, so let's yeah, any, uh, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Um. So the movie released on uh, December fifth uh, premiere in New York City. Uh, general release in December fourteenth, two thousand and five. Again, big marketing campaign. Uh, they had like a big big novelization push they had a, a novelization of the film and a prequel novel about kong uh also very notable was uh jackson also worked with ubisoft directly on a video game adaptation that is regarded as one of the best movie tie-in video games of all time uh which i thought was fairly interesting because it's it's jackson and the director of the rayman series teaming up to make this game which i thought was very interesting um and uh so there's that. But the box office movie um, was a big success. Uh, not as big as Universal would have hoped. Uh, they were expecting it to be one of the highest grossing movies of all time. It was a fairly high grossing movie of that year, made $562 million, was one of the top Universal movie grosses of all time, and ended up being uh, the fifth highest grossing movie to release in 2005. Uh, review wise, this movie was generally well regarded for its time period. Um, again, on the Rotten Tomato scale, about 84% of critics gave it a positive review. Uh, it was really well regarded for the performances, the motion capture, the special effects, and just the sense of spectacle and and sort of the grand nature that this classic story was presented in. Though, again, the main criticism of the movie was its length, uh, coming in at just over three hours. Uh, there was also a big Oscar push from this movie that Universal did present it for uh, a Best Director and and 
best picture and everything though it only got four uh visual effects nominations in art direction sound editing sound mixing and visual effects winning for the sound awards and for visual effects uh and again um this movie became sort of the uh, vision of Kong for a very long time in the sense that, again, the marketing for Kong and any new Kong merchandise and any new Kong licensing would use kind of the model and the look of Kong from this movie. And eventually that Kong section of the Universal Studio Tour, it burned down, unfortunately, in that great Universal fire that's so famous. Um, and when they decided to rebuild it, they contacted Jackson to help create his version of Kong for the studio tour. So even today, when you go on the Universal Hollywood studio tour, it's Jackson's Kong that is presented. And it really, even in, uh, they did a recent kind of adaptation of Kong for Universal Orlando, uh, a, a Skull Island attraction that also uses sort of uh, this version of Kong as its sort of main Kong. Uh, so this, the 2005 film does make a general big pop culture impact and does become sort of the kind of the, the vision of Kong pretty much up until Skull Island comes out, you know, for a very lengthy time. And to an extent is still sort of when we're yeah. talking about the traditional Kong story and, the, and kind of the Kong mythos, this is sort of the Kong that a lot of people still think of. Yeah. I, I would say that out of everything at the end of the day, this still is the most up-to-date Kong that people think of traditional Kong in terms of starting on the Island, coming to New York, climbing up the empire state building. Like that is, that's this Kong to still a lot of people. Um, whereas like, you know, Kong Soul Island, Kong, Kong is more of like MonsterVerse Toho Kaiju mm -hmm. Kong. But that this, the Jackson Kong, um, understandably so. Like, and I actually think that like that is an element because again, I look at Kong more as iconography than films at this point. And yeah. I actually think that's kind of cool that, that this new one has kind of like made its mark in that way. Yeah. And, it, and it's still like, I mean, again, like, well, to the know, point that like part of the, the Kong presentation in the ride, that virtual reality ride, like, it's funny that, you know, we talk about how much the V Rex segment is such a big thing. Like that was adapted into mm -hmm. the, the virtual universal ride. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's just like, I mean, as a mark of a filmmaker, like this is one of the movies that Peter Jackson is known for, you know, is like Lord of the Rings and this were just kind of this peak era of like that mainstream big budget Peter Jackson when like he was this sort of very just notable filmmaker and had become one of the more notable filmmakers on the planet. So mm -hmm. there's that kind of element too, where it's just like kind of this high period of Peter Jackson as a filmmaker and Ben being off these Lord of the Rings films that were huge. And this being the next one just added to that legacy and added to that intrigue and added to the mythos of this movie. And you're right. It's really is kind of cool that it is in addition to that 33 film. And it really stands in very much ways alongside it as part of the Kong mythos. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, that was a really great episode. I think I, I, that was a very interesting discussion, and yeah. uh, I'm I'm very happy with with uh, I, I'm generally very happy with with my choice of Kong and our choice of Kong because I think it's been a really fun time going through all these movies. And next time we will be doing our final uh, movie in this Kong series which will be uh, us finally finishing up the MonsterVerse on this podcast. So after our next Hong Kong finally, episode... Finally! Finally! We will have reviews of every single MonsterVerse movie 
when we talk about Kong Skull Island. And by the time that that episode airs and records, we will also announce what is coming after Kong on Bonzilla Presents. Uh, but next time is not a Kong movie. Our next movie is going to be Star Trek. And we are also at the end of an era. We are at the end of the original series movie era. We're going to be talking about the wrapping up of the original series films and the Klingons coming into the Federation with the sixth Star Trek movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And that will mark our end of the original series and our transition into the next generation. Cannot wait. All right, let's wrap this up with some plugs. Bonzillapod at gmail.com. Twitter.com says Bonzilla007. That is the best way to reach us. Uh, we also have Facebook.com says Bonzilla007. Like and subscribe, iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us. And we love still, love taking this journey every week. Absolutely. And uh, with that, just remember, same as it ever was, it was beauty that killed the beast. Take care. So we'll see you next time. It was beauty killed the beast.